G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my great privilege to continue to look with you at God's Word, still in the book of Genesis, today, chapter 39, verse 1 to 40, 23. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open at Genesis 39, 1? We're going to read large sections of this passage, try to think about what it means and how it applies to us as Christians who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all of God's promises come true. Uh, we'll also help you to have an outline of the talk and you'll find that on the service program that hopefully you've downloaded during the week. Let's pray. We'll ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him all of your promises are fulfilled, your promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Thank you that in him we become your people and we look forward to living under your blessing with you forever. Please help us now as we look at your word to understand what it says. Uh, give us hearts to love you. Help us to live our lives here and now uh, rightly and appropriately as people who have your promises fulfilled for us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm currently renovating my mother-in-law's house. That's mostly stuff uh, inside the house. We're replacing the, the, the kitchen and the bathroom and uh, we're repainting, fixing holes in the roof, that kind of thing. But, but at the back of the house is, is a small section <clears throat> where the, um, the, the whole roof needs to be replaced. And the thing about this little section, that the roof is very, very low. And so my renovator said to me, he said, Jeff, when we replace the roof, it'd be good to lift it up a bit higher. Just run a couple of courses of bricks on top of the wall and lift it up a bit higher. I said, what's that going to cost? He said, it's not a big job. A couple of rows of bricks, new roof, the whole thing, about 15000 So I said, OK, great, let's do it. But then a few weeks later, my renovator spoke to me and he said, I reckon we're going to need council approval to lift up the roof. I spoke to a bloke. I gave a mate of mine who's a certifier a ring. I said, what do you reckon? He said, mate, he said, mate don't worry about it. A couple of rows of bricks, who's ever, who's ever going to notice? It's so small, just do it. But my renovator is a Christian man, and uh, so he insisted that I check properly with the council. Sure enough, they said that under some technicality, I need consent. So I thought I'd better do the right thing, and I, I contacted a man to start off the process of obtaining consent. You start with a draftsman to draw the picture. Two and a half thousand dollars. Then you need a survey of the house done. No particular reason, you just need one. One thousand one hundred dollars. A structural engineer then needs to determine whether this course of bricks is going to stand up, $900. A certifier has to oversee the whole thing, $2,800. And that's before it even makes it to council. Council, of course, are going to take weeks to even deign to look at it. And who knows what's going to happen once they get their claws into things. It's going to cost more than $8,000. The, the whole job is $13,500 plus GST. $15,000 job, more than $8,000 just to obtain consent, as well as delay after delay. I tried to do the right thing. Admittedly, because my renovator is godly, not so much because I am, but, but I tried to do the right thing, and it has caused nothing but fuss and delay and trouble and expense and hassle for what I can see as being no good reason whatsoever. I'm sure you've had similar experiences in your life. You do the right thing, the, the good thing, the godly thing, and it just messes everything up. It just makes everything worse. You actually end up suffering for doing good. 
does happen, doesn't it? Sometimes doing the right thing makes things worse. Sometimes doing good means you suffer. So how do we respond to that as Christians? What should we do? How should we respond to this reality that doing good often leads to suffering? Now in these next two chapters, we're following the story of Joseph. Joseph, you may remember, is the favourite son of Jacob. Last week we, we saw he was a bit of a spoiled brat. He, he dobs on his brothers. He has, these, he has these dreams about how he's going to be the ruler of his family, which he rather foolishly tells everyone about. Uh, and, and as a result of all this, his brothers hate him. As we saw last week, they hate him so much that they seriously considered murdering him. And they ended up selling him as a slave to Egypt. As we pick up the story today... Joseph is in Egypt and he's been bought by an official called Potiphar. Potiphar has bought him as a slave. But God blesses Joseph. And God blesses Potiphar through Joseph. Interesting. Even far away in Egypt, even in slavery, God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're coming true for Joseph. He is blessed and he's being a blessing. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted, entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Things are looking okay. They're looking up for Joseph. But there's a problem. He's, he's a handsome bloke, Joseph, and Potiphar's wife takes a, a fancy to him. Joseph is godly about it. He refuses her advances, but she proves to be very persistent. Still in verse 6. Verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, Joseph is caught alone in the house with Potiphar's wife. She propositions him once again. Once again, he does the godly thing and he, he runs away. Verse 12. Verse 12, she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he, he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. 
then in anger, she starts making false accusations. This woman scorned. She falsely accuses Joseph of trying to seduce her. She tells the other servants her lies in verse 14. She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. She then repeats her lies to her husband. Uh, and in response, Potiphar puts Joseph in jail. Verse 19. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Poor Joseph. Poor Joseph. What's he done wrong? Nothing. He's done everything right. He's been godly. He's been good. He's been moral. He's, he's done the right thing by his master and by everyone. And where's it gotten him? Falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned. But even in jail, God is with Joseph. And while he's in jail, Joseph continues to be godly. He serves well, like he did with Potiphar. And uh, like Potiphar, the jailer ends up leaving Joseph in charge. Still in verse 20. Verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. After a while, uh, two men are put in the jail where Joseph is, the, 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 the cupbearer and the baker who worked for the, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh. While they're in jail, they have dreams, and God enables Joseph to interpret their dreams. Uh, there are two very different interpretations. There's a very good one for the cupbearer, very bad one for the baker. Uh, Joseph interprets the dreams for the two men, and then he speaks to the cupbearer, and he says, will you please remember me when the dream comes true? He says, it's not right that I'm here. Will you please remember me when the dream comes true and get me out of jail? Verse 6. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But... When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. 
When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole and the birds will eat away your flesh. The dreams do come true, exactly as Joseph said. But unfortunately for Joseph, the cupbearer forgets all about him. And so as we come to the end of the chapter, he's still stuck in jail. Once again, Joseph has done a good thing. Once again, he's been helpful and kind. But once again, he suffers. Verse 20. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. Chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Can you imagine how Joseph is feeling? His interpretation of the dream came true. The cupbearer is back in his position, right in the ear of Pharaoh. Any day now, he should remember me, Joseph must be thinking. Any day now, Joseph must be thinking, I'm out of here. I'm out of jail. But then nothing happens. Each day he wakes up to a new disappointment. As day after day after day, nothing changes. It's... It's what they do with torture, isn't it? It's a trick that torturers use. They they torture you for a while and then they make you think that the torture is finished. But then they start again. You you think your suffering is coming to an end and you sort of go, if I can just make it to the end. You think your suffering is coming to an end only to be disappointed as it starts up again. It's apparently very effective in torture for breaking people. Poor Joseph. He's had his hopes raised for nothing. He did good For nothing, his suffering remains unchanged. Okay. You see what's here in this passage? Potiphar buys Joseph as a slave in Egypt. God blesses Joseph and blesses Potiphar through Joseph. Joseph serves faithfully and effectively. But he's he's falsely accused and wrongly imprisoned. In prison... God is still with Joseph, and Joseph still serves faithfully and effectively. He he even rightly interprets the dream of a man who could put in a good word for him and get him out of jail. But the man forgets him. And so his situation stays the same. Joseph continues to suffer, stuck in his wrongful imprisonment. Friends, This passage, it it states it categorically. God is with Joseph. God is blessing Joseph. And yet, you look at what actually happens, and if you were Joseph, you wouldn't be feeling too blessed, would you? In fact, you may well doubt whether God is really with you at all, or or God is really blessing you at all. So it reminds me a little bit of that... uh, that, that uh, scene in the, the musical Fiddler on the Roof where Tovia is talking about how the Jews are suffering one thing after another, one thing after another. And, and Tovia says to God, he says, 
I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? In last week's passage, admittedly, Joseph was a, he was a bit spoiled. He was a bit foolish, dobbing on his brothers, telling everyone his dream. But here in this passage, Joseph, he is consistently godly, consistently faithful, consistently diligent. In this passage, it's clear God is with Joseph and Joseph keeps on doing the right thing. He does nothing nothing to deserve the bad things that happened to him. Joseph is suffering for doing good. All right, friends, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves as Christians. As we've seen over and over and over again in this book of Genesis, what connects us to these stories is God's promises. God promises Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph that they will be God's people in God's place under his blessing. Through their family, God promises to to, to reverse the curse on the sin of Adam. Through their family, God promises to restore humanity to blessed relationship with God. These promises... They are the very promises that Jesus came into this world to fulfill. Jesus, he he lived and he died and he rose again from the dead to fulfill these promises, to reverse the curse on Adam and all of us so, so that we can be God's people living under his blessing, ultimately in the new heaven and new earth forever. The, the, the promises that Joseph had, they are our promises in Jesus That's what connects us to the story. And so as we think about applying this passage in that light, well, the thing that strikes me is this. You can have God with you. You can have God blessing you. You can do absolutely the right thing. And still you can suffer. That's what happened to Joseph. And friends, it's what can happen to us as Christians as well. We see the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, Come with me in your Bible to to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter in the New Testament towards the back, uh, near the back of your Bible, 1 Peter, and it's going to be chapter 2 and we'll start at verse 19. 1 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 19. How are you going? You got it there? 1 Peter, chapter 2. And verse 19, Peter talks about uh, this sort of thing happening to us. He talks about when we suffer because we are being godly. And what he says is, if you suffer because you're being godly, he says, that is commendable in God's sight. In other words, God commends you. He is, he is pleased with you. He's thinking, he sees you suffer for doing good and God thinks, well done you. Good on you. God is not punishing you. He's not angry with you if you suffer for doing good. He is pleased with what you're doing. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. Have a look with me. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Peter says it's way better than suffering for doing the wrong thing. It's commendable not if you suffer for doing evil. No, no, it's commendable if you suffer for doing good. Verse 20, 
How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Peter says it's commendable. And Peter goes on to say, if you suffer for doing good, you're following the example of Jesus, because that's exactly what he did. Verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to God when he suffered unjustly. And Peter goes on to say, we Christians, we should do exactly the same thing. Uh, Jump down with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So friends, here I think is how we can apply this story from Genesis to ourselves as Christians. It's about how to respond when you, like Joseph, suffer for doing good. And I reckon there are two things to say. Two things to say. First, don't be surprised. And second, keep going. Keep doing good. Don't be surprised and keep doing good. That passage in Genesis, it was clear as a bell. God was with Joseph, said it over and over again. God was blessing Joseph, said it over and over again. God was blessing other people through Joseph. God's promises were coming true in Joseph's life. And Joseph himself, he he was being godly. There was no lack of faith. There was no disobedience. Joseph was doing the right thing. And yet Joseph suffered. Friend, don't be surprised when it happens to you. It doesn't mean God isn't with you. It doesn't mean God isn't blessing you. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Suffering, it is part of God's good plan for you. Did you get that? Because it's pretty radical. Suffering is part of God's good plan for you. I have to say, uh, this runs counter to the teaching of many modern churches. Uh, as I told you before, my son Joel and I are watching uh, a bit of uh, um, Christian TV on, on, um, on Foxtel at the moment, and this is just not the message that we're hearing. Uh, similarly, at my children's school, uh, recently I heard once again, there's a group of people from a church on the northern beaches, and they keep on saying to the kids, if you have faith, God will bless you. You'll be successful. You'll be prosperous. You just need to name it and claim it. And it's yours. Friends, it is dangerous teaching. It's dangerous, firstly, because it's contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible does not say expect prosperity. The Bible does not say expect a good life. The Bible does not say you deserve it. The Bible does not say expect that everything will go well. The Bible says, the Bible says expect suffering. And the more faithful you are, the more suffering you can expect. But, but this teaching, this prosperity teaching, it's not just contrary to the Bible. It's also, it's also just plain wrong. 
I mean, it might seem like it works on the North Shore and Northern beaches of Sydney, but th the reality is even the most successful of us, even the most prosperous of us, will only be successful and prosperous for a few short years. Soon, friends, we're all going to get sick. Soon we're all going to suffer in some way or other, and soon we're all going to die. This prosperity gospel, so-called, it is a terrible thing to teach, and especially to children, because suffering is coming to all of us, and if we don't expect it, if we don't plan for it, if we don't have a theology that can understand and fit it into our thinking, well, it can put our faith in jeopardy. When we suffer, we can start to think that God isn't there or that he isn't real or, or, or that he doesn't love us. Or, or we can add to our suffering the, the, the guilt that somehow we've brought on ourselves by doing some wrong thing. Friends, if, if we're going to help ourselves and our children to be resilient in faith, to, to stick it out for the long term, we need to be clear about this. So, Friends, let me be as clear as I can about it. God's plan for you is to suffer. Even when you do good. Maybe because you do good. Don't be surprised when it happens. Expect it to happen. That's application point number one. Expect to suffer for doing good. Second and final point. Second and final point is this. Keep doing good anyway. Even if all you get is suffering, even if all you get is pain and fuss and hassle, even if doing good makes things worse, even if no one appreciates what you're doing, even if no one notices what you're doing, even if people mistreat you or hate you for what you're doing, keep doing good anyway. When you suffer for doing good, it's a real temptation to give up, isn't it? It's a real temptation to stop doing good, to, to just to go with the flow, to take the easy way. It's a real temptation to stop saying what we ought to say or to start saying what we shouldn't say. It's a real temptation to, well, so many ways that this happens. I suspect I do it a lot. Let me just come back to the one example, though, that we started with. If I had my time again, I would be seriously tempted to just say to my renovators, just do the job. Forget counsel. Don't worry about getting consent. Total waste of time and money. No one's even going to notice. Save all the pointless trouble. Save all the pointless expense. Save all the pointless delay. Just do the job. But it's a wrong way to think, isn't it? What I should think instead is this. I ought to do the right thing. Why? Because it's the right thing. And because it's pleasing to God. I ought to do the right thing. And if that leads to trouble, if I suffer for doing good, well, I need to remember what we see here. God is pleased with me. God is, this is commendable before God. I mean, soon the trouble and the expense and the delay, they'll be, they'll be long gone, they'll be long forgotten. But then I can look forward to the commendation of God. So what should I do? What should all of us do when we suffer for doing good? Well, we should follow the example of Joseph here. We should follow the example of Jesus. We should do what Peter says to do. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will 
should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you see everything. You know everything. And so even if we suffer for doing good, well, we know that you've got it all under control, that a, a day of judgment is coming. And we thank you for telling us that it's, it's commendable in your sight when we suffer for doing good. And we're following the example of Jesus who suffered for doing good. So please, Father, help us to be mindful, expecting things to go wrong and expecting suffering when we do good. But, but more than that, give us the strength and the heart to want to do good anyway, to, to want to be pleasing to you. Strengthen us, we pray, to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.